Hi, this is Bob Murphy, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Nick Gosling, and today I'm joined by Canon Jim Lewis of the Diocese of South Carolina. And he's going to be talking to us today about an issue which uh, is, is very intricate in its, its legal and ecclesiastic ramifications, uh, but which ultimately we think is, is very relevant to thinking about Christianity and liberty and the involvement of, of secular uh, governments in ecclesiastic disputes. So Canon Jim is going to give us the background, and we're going to dive in and explain what has been going on in the Episcopal Church as it pertains to South Carolina, and how that is uh, is actually very relevant to the the internal function and operations of local churches throughout the country and and throughout the world. Canon Jim, thank you for uh, for joining us here today. Thank you, Nick. Appreciate the opportunity to do that. Your invitation uh, was most gracious to be here with you today. The Diocese of South Carolina, as you noted, has been in this litigation for um, the better part of five years now. Um, a little backstory is needed to appreciate how we got here. I think it's probably fair to say that the Diocese of South Carolina, um, as one of over 100 dioceses in the Episcopal Church, has been at odds with the larger denomination for the better part of 30 or more years. Um, and it's been over a, a broad range of issues. Um, some of our conflicts, our differences of opinion, have been in the, the realm of polity, um, how we organize ourselves and how we do business. Um, towards the end of that process, there were some um, canonical changes made um, to the governing canons of the Episcopal Church. Um, to which we objected because, frankly, they were um, in conflict with contrary to the Constitution uh, of the Episcopal Church, which in theory is the um, uh, more authoritative document. So polity has been an issue for us um, in recent years. Um, theology and a whole host of areas, um, most significantly that of Christology, um, who is Jesus Christ and um, what does it mean to talk about salvation and redemption, um, atonement, um, those sort of key theological um, underpinnings of anything that could be recognized as Christianity? Um, we had major differences of opinions with the domination about that as well. Um, and then, of course, um, ethics and other um, sort of applied areas of theology were also places in which we had um, market disagreements and what had happened um, going back uh, most recently to 2009 uh, was a series of um, actions taken by our diocesan convention that were made for the express purpose of differentiating the Diocese of South Carolina from the positions taken by the larger denomination, the, the National Episcopal Church. And all that came to a head in 2012 um, when the attempt was made by the denomination, the Episcopal Church, to remove Bishop Lawrence um, on the grounds of abandonment of communion. Of course, we hadn't at that point gone anywhere or done anything other than to um, take acts of differentiation um, from the national denomination. We simply staked out our um, what I would say conservative opinions and tried to um, live into those appropriately. So in that, in, in that regard, um, tell us a little bit about how historically the, the denomination or, or general Anglican polity functions as it pertains to the local congregations and the local uh, bishops versus your, your archbishop or your primate and, and the councils. How does that all kind of interplay here? Because it's, for those of our listeners who aren't familiar, it's not like 
Uh, it's not like in Roman Catholicism where you have total central control coming out of out of the highest levels. It, it's a little bit more decentralized. Um, so, I mean, wh wh why don't you kind of explain that a little bit to give us some context? Happy to. And and it's a helpful distinction to think about that range of hierarchy from the Roman Catholic Church at one end of the spectrum where you, you really can um, trace authority for all decision-making all the way up to the level of Pope and Rome to a, a Baptist sort of polity where the decision-making is entirely at the level of the local congregation made by the congregation when in a meeting as the congregation. Um, so as Anglicans, we're um, generally speaking not congregationalists, though some of our congregations arguably behave that way sometimes. Um, we are a, a church that believes in the, a threefold order of clergy, bishops, priests, and deacons. Um, we have parishes that are um, led by priests with um, deacons assisting um, in particular roles. And then parishes are grouped together geographically, normally, into dioceses and dioceses into provinces. Um, the Episcopal Church is one of the provinces of the larger Anglican Communion. Um, at this point in history, the Anglican Communion is the third largest um, Christian body in the world with about 80 million members worldwide. Um, with some 38 provinces, um, depending upon how you do the math, um, scattered around the globe. Um, the majority of those in terms of membership being in what's been referred to uh, commonly now as the global south. So um, it's normal for a province such as the Anglican Church of North America, of which we are a part now, um, to have dioceses um, spread across the geographic landscape with each diocese having anywhere from um, 12 to 50 or more um, member parishes that are part of that diocese, but each one a, a separate legally incorporated distinct entity within that diocese. And that's always been the case in the Diocese of South Carolina as well. All of our parishes are, are distinct legal entities with their own rights and title to their property, um, or at least so we thought, um, clear title to our property. and meeting together, joined in a um, diocesan convention, which we're members of by free choice, by association. And the sort of um, American Anglicanism is, is kind of an interesting case compared to a lot, a lot of the rest of the world, because, and correct me if I say anything mistaken here, but so the, the global Anglican community uh, historically centers on uh, being in communion with the Archbishop of Canterbury, right? And so the, he's the, the primate of the Church of England. And it's sort of the, the policy of the Church of England to only recognize one affiliate in a particular geographic region. And in North America, you have the Episcopal Church. Uh, but uh, many people within the church, in, including your, your diocese, uh, are are critical of the direction that the Episcopal Church has been has been going, and so we have a lot of other uh, Anglican denominations, uh, particularly in in North America, which are which are more conservative, uh, precisely because of the, the the direction of the the officially recognized body recognized by um, by, by Canterbury. Is that is that correct? I would say predominantly correct, but there are some. Um, complications um, to your explanation that needs um, some filling in. Um, the Anglican Communion is a, um, you could say it's a, a, a creature of chance and circumstance. Um, it's come to pass in that all the many places where the um, British Crown once upon a time had colonies um, and the Church of England went with them as they, as they go, um, established local indigenous churches. Um, that's how those 38 provinces come to be. And there's never been a, a, a formal charter per se, um, but one of the consequences of that common history um, is that the Archbishop of Canterbury has been one of the focal points of unity in the Anglican Communion, um, one of what's been called the um, instruments of unity, but only one of them. Um, another is the Primates Council, 
which is composed of e each one of those um, provinces has its own primate or archbishop, um, a, a senior bishop in some shape or fashion, um, varies a bit according to local um, canons and custom. Um, but that group gathered together is one body that's a source of unity for the communion that has um, a measure of authority and decision-making ability. Um, the other, another is the Anglican Council, Anglican Communion Council, um, that's sort of an elected representative body with members, um, representative members from all those provinces, uh, bishops, priests, and deacons, and bishops, priests, and laity from around the communion. And then there's also something called the Lambeth Conference that meets every 10 years. That's a gathering of all the bishops of the entire Anglican communion. So each one of those has a certain role in establishing unity and communion across the, the broader Anglican communion. Um, the role of the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, really is fairly limited in that he has the, um, the privilege, you would say, of invitation. Um, he's the one who decides what bishops get invited to that um, every 10-year Lambeth conference. Um, so his role in recognizing um, other parts, other members as being um, part of the Anglican Communion is of significance, but primarily at the level of being able to invite people to the family gatherings. Um, the complicated reality at this point is that um, there are provinces like the Episcopal Church at present that are recognized by the Archbishop of Canterbury, but aren't recognized as being legitimate or at least in good standing by large swaths of the rest of the Anglican Communion. So um, it's much harder now than it was 30 years ago to say who's a part of the Anglican Communion, because it depends upon who you ask. Um, there are a significant number of primates around the Communion, uh, arguably a majority who would say the Anglican Church in North America and its primate Foley Beach um, are members in good standings of the Communion. They're in communion with us, um, they would say. So by their lights, we're part of the Anglican Communion, and we are one of those rare but not unknown places where um, there is, in fact, more than one um, Anglican expression um, found within our borders. Okay, so I think that gives a lot of clarity uh, regarding Episcopal and Anglican polity and kind of why uh, or, or how this, this came to be. So now let's, let's turn back to the issue at hand. So... You'd mentioned there's a, a number of complex reasons that ultimately gave rise to this. I think in in the kind of popular perception or media, at least for those who who follow this sort of thing, uh, the 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 ordination of of openly practicing homosexual ministers was was a major factor. Uh, but but as you mentioned, there's there, there's many others theological issues that that your uh, diocese took with the with the broader denominations. So. Um, maybe maybe get into a little bit more on on that, and then kind of how it all came to a head. What actually uh, precipitated your diocese choosing to secede essentially from from the the denomination? Certainly, um, in the summer of 2012, the Episcopal Church held one of its triennial um, general conventions, which is a representative gathering of clergy, laity, and bishops from throughout our particular province, the Episcopal Church at that time. And one of the many, um, I would even say countless resolutions um, considered by General Convention that time um, were resolutions that had to do with um, both gender identity and the blessing of same-sex relationships. And the Episcopal Church continued down the road it had already been on for some time, of being increasingly liberal in both those areas and embracing both, I would say, of those cultural changes. And it'd be fair to say that that did cause a great deal of um, consternation at the level of our diocese, um, where the vast majority of our people felt like there was not reasonable theological grounds for those changes. Um, if you want to, to name the one single issue that was the source of our break with the Episcopal Church. Um, if you need an issue, it'd be the nature and authority of Scripture. 
we have very different understandings of the nature and authority of Scripture um, that lead us to very different con conclusions on lots of issues, and human sexuality is one of those. When the bishop returned from convention, it was very clear that we had um, um, serious divisions within the diocese and a crisis that had to be addressed in some fashion. So he asked for and began uh, what we thought were good faith um, negotiations, deliberations. Um, we were under what we thought was a flag of truce with the Episcopal Church to discuss these matters. He had um, met once with the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church and was scheduled to meet again. And before that next meeting could be held, um, we discovered that um, in secret and unbeknownst to us, uh, a trial court for bishops had been convened um, to consider the charge that um, by the bishop's um, failure to prevent our diocese from differentiating itself, um, the, he had in effect abandoned the communion of the church. So the attempt was made to remove him, and that was the point at which um, our first our standing committee and then our diocesan convention um, met in order to um, take the actions necessary to remove ourselves from the Episcopal Church. Um, and it could have all ended right there had we simply been allowed to exercise what we would have called um, freedom of religion and freedom of association to um, take those actions. Um, all our parishes did the things under South Carolina law um, necessary for an incorporated nonprofit to um, disassociate from whatever body it might be affiliated with and did that in um, good conscience and due order and were effectively there. Um, this all took place in October and November, and it was at about this same time it began to become apparent that the Episcopal Church um, was going to establish a, a rump diocese here and commit what we would have called identity theft. Um, they began using our name, um, set up a new website for themselves, opened up bank accounts for themselves, um, began corresponding with our people using our name and our diocesan seal saying that they were us. Um, if you know anything about um, trademarks and identity, you know that if you don't d defend your right to use something, um, you can use your right to lose something like your name um, if you're an incorporated entity. So it left us no choice at that point, but we felt like to go to court in order to um, defend those rights. And what we actually did um, was to ask for a declaratory judgment. We didn't ask for the court to um, give us anything or to take something from somebody else. We simply asked the court to affirm that we were who we've always been since 1785, uh, the Diocese of South Carolina, and that we continued to own the property um, whose deeds had our names on them. And that was the nature of what we went to court to try and seek. Well, and this is this is an important point of, of clarification, I think, for our listeners, because, I mean, you know, one of the issues that that I think would be would be raised not only in, in, in this uh, portion of of discussing this story, but but also what we'll talk about later uh, is, of course, First Corinthians six. Right. I mean, you know, the, the, the issue of using the secular courts to resolve internal church um, disputes. But what you're explaining, a, a declaratory judgment, you know, you're not. You're not asking the government courts to go, you know, whack the opposition with a stick. You're just asking for a recognition of your rights. And the legal system is so intricate and complex in this area that, like you said, I mean, if you, if you did nothing, intellectual property law, unfortunately, would have sort of kicked you to the curb. So... So you went in, you asked for a declaration just to, to recognize uh, the diocese's uh, rights to your, your names and trademarks, which I'm assuming was also, you know, consistent with, with your canon law and the, and the internal uh, functioning of, of the denomination. So uh, what happened next? Um, the initial consequence, we went to the local state courts for this. And we were immediately granted a temporary injunction that prevented the Episcopal Church from using our name as if they were us. 
And eventually, after um, two years of litigation, most three, I guess, is in 2015, um, the trial court um, ruled in our favor that we would, um, that we indeed had a right to our, our name and our property, and that we had done everything we did in keeping with state law. And that ruling was appealed um, immediately to the state Supreme Court, where the case was heard in September of 2015. And we waited for nearly two years for the state Supreme Court to um, give their ruling on this issue. We went into this with a, a fair measure of confidence. It had been back in 2009 that the state Supreme Court had ruled in a case called the All Saints Pauley's Island case that a parish did indeed have the right to um, take advantage of the process allowed under South Carolina law to disassociate from its denomination and could do so with every right to take its property with it um, because the grounds for which the church was um, claiming a trust interest in the property um, was not supported under South Carolina law. So. Uh, we waited for two years for the court to rule, and now finally in August of this year, August 2nd, year of 2017, the court finally ruled after almost a full two years of waiting. That was almost unheard of, and, and did so in a fashion that was even more unheard of. Uh, we got, in fact, five separate rulings from the various um, justices on the court. Uh, if you start, study, look at court rulings, you know that most commonly, um, you'll have a majority opinion that three or four people sign on to that may be written by one person, um, but represents the legal opinion of all parties. And then maybe one or two people sign on to a minority opinion that's the um, different take on the legalities of the case. Um, in this particular ruling, we have, as I said, five separate opinions. And no one I have talked to in the um, among the attorneys involved in this case, no one's ever heard of a state Supreme Court ruling with five separate opinions. That's just unheard of. That is very unusual. I mean, so if you have five opinions, um, that how did they decide which is actually the the binding the binding opinion of those five? Um, that's an excellent and very problematic question. Um, some attorneys that I have spoken to. Um, have made a fairly good case that there, in fact, is no um, majority opinion in this case at this point. Um, one reason being sort of how the uh, the justice in this case, um, what they concluded about the desired results of the litigation, um, but also the basis on which they get there, um, because um, I'm getting into um, legal jargon here that's beyond my kin, um, but some of the justices, at least two, argued that this was a case at equity, and the other justices argued that it was a case at law. And those are very different rationales for arriving at a, a legal conclusion. And there's no way to um, put the reason for the results together with the results to come up with a majority opinion on anything. <laughs> um, but the perceived majority is that there were three justices who um, did seem to agree on the fact that while the um, congregations as legal entities left the Episcopal Church, they were not able to take their property with them because the Episcopal Church had a trust interest in that property. So the, the basis upon which the, the, the property was being adjudicated, it, to my understanding, actually comes down to a, an internal policy or internal bylaws of the denomination. Is that is that correct? Is that kind of what was being weighed here? Um, that was certainly the issue that was given precedent, excuse me, given um, priority by several of the justices. Uh, the Episcopal Church back in 1979 at that general convention that I mentioned, that um, triennial gathering, uh, passed a, a new canon, something that's been referred to since as the Dennis Canon, um, in remembrance of the bishop who proposed it. 
and it was a canon that was written expressly for the purpose of trying to prevent um, parishes from leaving the Episcopal Church and taking their property with them. And what the canon effectively said was that the Episcopal Church asserted by the passage of this canon that it had a trust interest in the property of every parish um, in the denomination and did so by virtue of um, A, its understanding this developed sense of its hierarchical authority that as a hierarchical church that they could do such a thing, um, simply say it and, and, and that made it so, and also on the basis of some language in a um, then current U.S. Supreme Court ruling that spoke about ways in which a denomination um, might settle such matters in advance, uh, might go about establishing a trust interest in property. Um, and the whole argument hangs on the um, interpretation of some language the court has there about um, putting a minimal uh, burden on a denomination wishing to do that. Um, the court at that time seemed to understand, as have most interpreters since then, that what that meant was the procedures required in any state to establish in a, tr a trust interest in somebody else's property are minimal. You simply have to ask that party to sign a piece of paper that says, I give my denomination a trust interest in my property. Um, thus, you have a, a legally binding agreement between the two that the one granting the trust interest really did intend to do it and agreed to it. Um, what the court has said in this case is that that wasn't really necessary, that the, the minimal burden, burden standard means um, what's the very least that the denomination might possibly do in order to establish a trust interest in somebody else's property. It would be the equivalent of if the Chamber of Commerce at the, the U.S. national level were to pass a rule for itself that said they have a, a trust interest in the property of every local Chamber of Commerce throughout the United States. And the court would then give effect to that simply because the, the national body said it was so. Um, there's no legal setting in which that would stand up in court. Um, the understanding of how trusts in property work is a long-standing and extremely well understood. Um, no court would ever uh, agree to such an assertion, but it's being um, put forward in this case um, by the court on the basis of um, it's a church making the claim and that a church is a hierarchical body can assert such a thing and the court can't examine it in any fashion to look at it and see if that's reasonable or not. That's a, that's a very fascinating line of reasoning because, I mean, like you said, trust law goes back at least to medieval law and possibly even to, I, I think, Roman law. Uh, and, and so to just say, well, because the denomination claims it, uh, we, we, we can't interfere. That's sort of a, uh, a, a might makes right <laughs> attitude, it seems to me. Um, so before it ever got to this point, what attempts were there to mediate or negotiate or try to strike a deal to, uh, to, to, to prevent this, this whole complicated thing from happening? I mean, did you... Did you try to arbitrate with the denomination, or did anybody kind of propose some kind of a compromise? I think it's fair to say that that's what we were trying to do, or thought we were trying to do at the time the attempt was made to remove the bishop. Um, and this is one of these denominational aspects that's um, helpful perhaps to explain a little bit. Um, to remove the bishop of a diocese, is, needs to be recognized for what it is. That's an attempt to take control of the diocese. Um, while a, a bishop in our tradition doesn't have um, unquestioned and complete authority over everything that happens in his diocese, um, he does have a tremendous amount of influence and control. And if you remove the bishop and replace him with someone else, 
um, that really is the first and essential step to um, taking over the diocese and, and changing its direction. So um, that's why that action was um, so significant for us at the time it happened. Um, as I said, we had opened what we thought were um, sincere um, discussions with the Episcopal Church and its national leadership in order to address these um, theological and polity and ethical differences that we had with the denomination, how we might somehow um, diffuse this conflict in a fashion um, that did not lead to what had happened before. We were actually the, the fifth diocese of the Episcopal Church to choose to disassociate. We weren't the first ones. Um, others had done so as a diocese before us, and um, innumerable parishes had already left um, before we reached um, this point of conflict that we felt it necessary to leave also. Once the legal uh, sort of course of action began to unfold and, and your diocese decided to uh, separate or secede from the denomination, uh, it, so there, there was controversy over the intellectual property and the trademarks, uh, and there's controversy over the physical property, the buildings. So I, it, it was my understanding there was some kind of a... Uh, some kind of a, a proposed deal that was rejected that had to do with with how to balance out those two things is that is that accurate that's a good question to ask about the um supreme court as i said heard our case the state supreme court heard our case in september of 2015 um, during the course of that summer we were preparing our attorneys were preparing our final brief for the state supreme court and that was due on a, a date certain in June. And about two weeks before that document was due, um, legal counsel for the local Episcopal Church Diocese contacted one of our parish attorneys and said, um, I have a proposition for you. And instead of going through um, legal counsel for the diocese, our lead legal counsel, he floated this through uh, one of the parish attorneys, um, to, to make it simple, the offer was effectively, um, if you will surrender the diocese, its identity, and its property, um, we'll let all the parishes go free. Um, there were several problems we had with the offer um, beyond sort of the, the content of it. At that point, the uh, trial court had ruled completely in our favor. Um, it, it wasn't a, a deal, if you will, as far as that goes, giving up a lot that was um, at that point arguably all ours. Um, but the other um, problems with this offer were that first, um, in, in order for an offer to be binding, it has to be made by people with authority to make the offer. And while we had a letter from the, the local attorney. Um, we never were able to secure anything from the National Episcopal Church and their legal counsel that indicated that they had the authority to make such an offer. And we made that request in writing that they would give us that um, evidence that the National Church was also prepared to agree to um, such an offer. And it was never forthcoming. Um, the other significant issue, I think, was that the, the, the due date for our response to this offer was the same day that our final brief had to be submitted to the state Supreme Court. Um, and when we asked for an extension beyond that date um, to continue this conversation, um, that was denied by the Episcopal Church. So it became very apparent that, A, um, those that had the authority to make a deal weren't making the offer and that the real reason for making the offer actually appeared to be um, how can we disrupt their preparation for filing a brief with the state Supreme Court. So for all of those reasons and a number more, we um, rejected that offer such as it was. So what, what is the current status of of the case of the issue um i mean this this ruling came down from from the supreme court with the five opinions just very recently uh what are your your next steps what what's happening now on september 1 we filed two motions with the supreme court 
Um, one was a motion for recusal for one of the justices, Kay Hearn. Um, Justice Hearn happens to have been uh, a former member of one of our congregations that decided with the rest of the diocese to leave the Episcopal Church. He was part of a group that left that congregation in Conway, South Carolina, in order to form a new Episcopal congregation. So she was very much a, a party to all of these legal matters as they were um, transpiring on the ground at the parish level. Um, her husband was a representative to the first two um, organizing conventions of the new Episcopal Church Diocese here in South Carolina, um, was part of the body, the governing board that formed the new parish, and both have continued, which is fine to be very much involved in their local parish. But all this to say um, she has a significant conflict of interest in this case that she provided the deciding vote for. Um, had she not been that third vote, um, there would not have been a, a ruling against us on the matter of parish property. Um, by her vote, her parish, her diocese, and her denomination um, stand to benefit by a windfall of um, some $500 million worth of property um, that dispossesses some 23,000 members of our congregations. Um, the Code of Judicial Conduct in South Carolina is very clear that um, a justice is supposed to recuse themselves if there's even the possible appearance of uh, bias or conflict of interest. Um, her conflict of interest in this case is profound. So the, the first motion that we filed on September 1 was a request for her recusal and the vacating of her opinions in this case. Um, that's a U.S. constitutional due process issue. Um, in the motion for rehearing, there are a number of other um, constitutional legal issues that we have raised that we feel like the court um, needs to address. Um, I've mentioned some of those already. Um, one of them is the fact that um, many of the facts claimed um, in the two lead opinions of this case um, we're not based on material that's to be found anywhere in the court records. Um, just as a, for instance, um, the, the rationale for how the Dennis Canon could take effect in parishes that never signed a piece of paper that um, surrendered their property, um, the rationale was that they had somehow by um, adopting parish bylaws that in any way mentioned the Episcopal Church in doing so had um, acceded to its authority and by sort of um, chain of effects uh, agreed to the validity of the Dennis Canon, even though that was certainly not the intent. Uh, well, one of the parishes that was judged to have lost its property is St. Philip's Church, which is the mother church of the diocese here in Charleston. Um, and a very thorough search has been done of the um, all the governing documents of St. Philip's Church, and never in its 300-plus year history has it ever acceded to the Episcopal Church or anything other than something called the Articles of Religion, uh, which is a document from Anglican history um, that was created in the Church of England. <laughs> so it has nothing to do with the Episcopal Church. Um, so there are a, a number of those sorts of problems and flaws with the um, ruling as it currently stands that we think merits the court reconsidering its opinion and rehearing the case um, in order to address all these constitutional issues that have arisen. And now one of the other issues that's that's come up is the Episcopal Church has sued your bishop over false advertising. Is that correct? Um, that's one of those that it, it's, do you laugh or you cry? Uh, the assertion made in the original federal court filing made by the Episcopal Church, um, the case was originally um, von Rosenberg versus Lawrence. Um, bishop von Rosenberg was the um, bishop elected to be the new bishop of the Episcopal Diocese that um, was raised up to replace us here. And the accusation is essentially what you have said, that somehow Bishop Lawrence has been um, continuing to hold himself out as a bishop of the Episcopal Church um, when, in fact, the Episcopal Church bishop in this area is Bishop von Rosenberg. Um, as I said, 
the accusation on the face of it is laughable. We've never, in any sense, uh, held out that Bishop Lawrence continues to be a bishop in the Episcopal Church. Um, nothing could be farther from the truth or anything that we have asserted, but that's the nature of the claim that's been made in the federal court and was the original basis um, for that filing. That case is moving forward now to trial. Yeah, you know, the, the this whole thing, I mean, it's it, it it is it is very sad when you when you think about like the, these kind of crazy accusations and assertions like that. Um, and I mean, it's just for for me, I I, I got to go back to, to to looking at the New Testament, looking at the Book of Acts, looking at the first few centuries of the Church, and just thinking, boy, I you never would have seen this kind of uh, craziness going on in in the first and second centuries of of Christianity. You know, you you certainly wouldn't see um, a a denomination. Uh, going to to Rome, going to Caesar, and trying to get them to to enforce and punish other other Christians over an ecclesiastic dispute. I mean, that's what Paul's talking about in First Corinthians six. So it's just that 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 to me is just the most tragic part about this entire thing. but but now they're suing your your bishop over false like it's just it's it's really an astounding thing. And I just think as 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 the global church, the church universal, um, Man, we got to get our act together on some of this stuff because we got to be able to resolve our own internal stuff. Um, You've raised some really important issues that I'd like to take a moment to speak to if I could. Sure, yeah. Before we launched into that request for a declaratory judgment, we really did spend a lot of time um, reflecting over these very kinds of issues, thinking about um, what it is that we were going to do and what it meant for us is a, a Christian body um, to go to the courts and, and, and ask for their intervention in a case like this. Um, I guess the things I would observe would be first that, as I noted already, we had attempted to um, have negotiations with the, the national church and that had failed. Um, we actually wrote a, a lengthy paper on the subject looking at um, that First Corinthians passage that you mentioned earlier and its implications for um, how one should resolve conflict um, within church bodies. Um, we did some analysis from the perspective of just war theory um, that provides grounds for how do you um, approach conflict when it appears conflict is unavoidable. Um, but I think with probably um, one of the most helpful pieces of theology that we did was to actually um, look at the life of St. Paul and the, the, the actual multiple times in which during the course of his ministry, he actually did something similar to what we have done. That is, um, for instance, when he was um, jailed or, or wrongfully punished, um, we have some good accounts and acts of those occasions when he um, appealed to his right as a Roman citizen. Um, the most memorable of those perhaps being... Um, in verse in chapters 21 through 25, when um, he's first arrested in um, Jerusalem on the Temple Mount um, for quote unquote starting a riot, and they're about to um, um, torture him in order to quote get the truth out of him, and um, he asks the centurion, you know, "Are you going to do this to a Roman citizen?" Uh, in which case, they realize very quickly that's that's not kosher, um, so to speak, and they um, back away from that. Uh, they respect his rights as a citizen. And then finally, when he's um, in um, the, the governor's, Roman governor's palace down in Tiberias, um, the Jewish leaders have come down from Jerusalem, and they're making all these charges against him. And it becomes apparent the Roman governor is, is about to, prepared to, um, send him back to Jerusalem um, to let him you know, be tried there, so to speak, to let the issues be sorted out there. And um, Paul recognizes that's a death sentence that that's um, um, intended to get him out on the road where he can be attacked and, and assassinated. Um, so he appeals to Rome in that case. He again exercises his rights as a Roman citizen. Um, we feel like what we have done in asking for a declaratory judgment is of a very similar character to what Paul has done in this case. Um, at that point, you could say there were no... Um, 
denominational um, divides between um, St. Paul and the um, Jewish leaders who were um, making these accusations against him. Um, there were some sense of parallel to what we're dealing with here. Um, there are differences, but they're not clear denominational differences. Um, but he exercised his rights as a citizen. That's like what we feel like we've done in asking for declaratory judgment. We have asked for um, the court simply to affirm what we understand about our rights as um, citizens within the state of South Carolina. Sure, and and I mean, like I I had kind of mentioned and, and even intimated throughout um, throughout this interview. I mean, I I, I, I agree with with your your basic. Um, Position. I mean, as far as as your, the, the the right of the diocese to to secede and retain your property and and all of these things. I mean, my my heart is with you on on all of that. Um, just trying to give a give kind of a balanced account, you know. And so, I mean, one of the one of the, one of the pushbacks that I suppose could be said there is that in in those examples you cited, Paul was specifically defending himself against uh, against the Roman government by utilizing his rights as a Roman citizen because these were. These were moments where, either expressly or 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 uh, indirectly, the the Roman government was was acting as his uh, persecutor or aggressor, and so he's utilizing his rights to defend himself against aggressive acts of Rome or Rome's agents uh, or things done with Rome's approval. So I mean, this is this is a little different than that, uh, but but what I I, I do agree with is, as I mentioned earlier, intellectual property and trademark law, uh, both in the United States and internationally, is is so complicated. I mean, and, and contradictory at many points. I mean, the the, the law conflicts with itself constantly, uh, and and there's interlocking treaty issues and and federal issues and state issues, uh, and so I mean, it's the the government has unfortunately created a situation in which sometimes. You don't really have a choice other than to assert uh, your, your 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 trademark rights, uh, precisely to prevent someone else from then claiming it and coming after you. Uh, so I, I I totally get that, and I, I understand um, why you've why you've pursued the the, the course you have. Um, so where's the what, what, like what? What's next? I mean, here we are. We're we're kind of coming to a close of of this interview, but the but the issue, of course, is ongoing. Uh, so you 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 filed your your two motions in September. Uh, there's there's the claim out against your bishop in federal court for false advertising, which like like you said is is both humorous and sad. Uh, where do you see? I mean, okay, so I mean, are 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 the parishes being displaced out of out of the, these buildings? Where are your congregants going to go? Where are they going to be meeting if these buildings are are taken away? Uh, and 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 what do you think the future is of of the diocese, especially now that you're you're affiliated to a new denomination? Um, I think it's fair to say that um, there's significant anxiety in the diocese right now because we don't know with any clarity what the future holds. Uh, while we're confident in God's providence that everything that we have been through to date will be redeemed, um, what form that will take is um, impossible to say at this point. Um, the parishes continue to worship on their property, um, but we've encouraged everyone to begin making what we call Plan B preparations um, to have a plan for what they'll do if we indeed lose the um, control of our property. Um, that's a possibility. Um, the state Supreme Court has in its hands essentially everything they need to make a decision. So we're once again waiting upon the court to take what actions they will take at um, state court level. Um, in the federal court, the judge there has um, suggested mediation as a possible way to resolve all of these issues. So a, a date has been set in November um, to go through mediation with a mediator assigned by the court and perhaps the sort of um, settle it among yourselves um, admonition that uh, 1 Corinthians would suggest uh, might still prevail. It's possible. Um, it has to be observed in the 90-plus um, 
property cases of this sort in which the Episcopal Church has been engaged. Um, they've never settled one of them yet um, outside of court. Um, so the prospects based on history don't look good for that, but we're um, about to make the effort again. And perhaps our um, conversation will be more fruitful this time than it was the last time back in 2012. Yeah, Lord willing. I mean, we can always, uh, you know, hold out hold out hope that maybe there's there's a better way to to resolve these sorts of things. Just uh, uh, curious, and I don't know if you even know the answer to this, but the the mediator that's being assigned um, is this just a a a standard lawyer who specializes in mediation, or is this going to be someone who has some experience with with ecclesiastic disputes and, and perhaps is even a, a Christian mediator? What I can say is that he is a um, justice in the federal district court level and someone very experienced in the law and, and all the many issues that are um, wrapped around this particular case. Um, so I have every confidence that they will do the best possible job in being the mediator necessary to bring both parties hopefully to some sort of agreement all right well fascinating stuff canon jim lewis from the diocese of south carolina thank you very much for joining us here today and thank you nick been a pleasure chatting that's all the time we have folks for this episode of the libertarian christian podcast you can write to us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com with any questions or suggestions or comments that you may have about the show. Uh, you can also engage with us on social media. And if you'd like to support our work, because we are donor-supported, you can do that at libertarianchristians.com slash donate. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Libertarian Christians.